LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Mitch Horowitz, who joins us to discuss his book, The Power of Sex Transmutation. For most people, sex is simply about pleasure or procreation, and sometimes a bit of both. But what if I told you that it holds the potential to transform your entire life and help you achieve your ultimate hopes, dreams, and ambitions? A man will do almost anything go to almost any length to get a woman he truly desires. Drive, determination, creativity and ingenuity suddenly appear to be at his fingertips as he pursues his passion. Now, imagine just what might be possible were he to apply this energy and imagination to other parts of his life. Sexual desire is the most powerful urge most of us will ever experience. Over 80 years ago, positive-thinking pioneer Napoleon Hill, in his seminal self-empowerment book Think and Grow Rich, set out ways to transform this desire and use it in pursuit of your goals. He called this technique sex transmutation. It was, and remains, the most intriguing, powerful, and misunderstood idea in Think and Grow Rich. Listen on and discover one of the least discussed dimensions of how your thoughts and intention help shape your reality. Hello and welcome, Mitch, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, man. Great to be here. Uh, Mitch, today we're going to be talking about a little book that you issued recently. It's entitled The Power of Sex Transmutation, How to Use the Most Radical Idea from Think and Grow Rich. Now, in my recorded introduction, I've said a little bit about who Napoleon Hill was uh, mm-hmm. what, what Think and Grow Rich is. So I've set that out for listeners who are unfamiliar, but perhaps just in your own words, you could say a little bit about how this came about, because I think I might, might be paraphrasing you here, but you said that, that this chapter in Napoleon's book was the most controversial and misunderstood. Uh, you delivered a talk on this, and you've obviously decided it's important enough to condense into this little book. So just in your own words, say how this came about and why you think this particular chapter is so significant. Sure. I was always very intrigued with the chapter on sex transmutation, and I found that of all the concepts in the book, and the book has been out since 1937, it is the least discussed, uh, the least understood, and in fact, uh, a hero of mine, Earl Nightingale, a radio broadcaster and motivational writer, produced a condensation of Hill's book in 1960, and he omitted the chapter entirely. It was replaced by a rather mediocre section on the subject of enthusiasm 
which I suppose was intended as a euphemism for sex energy. And I realized that it's a chapter that even in the 21st century, people are uncomfortable discussing, and yet it represents a very powerful practical application of an esoteric idea that can be found in Taoism, in Kabbalah, in Vedic thought, today in chaos magic, ceremonial magic, in my own brand of anarchic magic. And it's funny, we tend to look upon Napoleon Hill nowadays as a very familiar figure. Some people tend to see Think and Grow Rich as metaphysics with training wheels, so to speak. And yet, I've also had people who practice chaos magic and other forms of sex magic come to me and say, you know, Hill's chapter on sex transmutation, on using sexual energy as a springboard for actualization, for creativity, for causation, is one of the best, most practical things that's ever been written on the topic. And I decided it was time that our culture had a clearer, more practical, applicable exploration of the material in that chapter, because it's, it's quite extraordinary. So that's why I wrote this uh, short book on sex transmutation. Well, hopefully listeners uh, here will be able to get something out of this. Uh, certainly they will if they are already interested in and have read about mind metaphysics, uh, new thought, power of positive thinking, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I also hope that, that some people listening here who don't necessarily know anything about any of that will find this of interest with regard just to the sexual urge, uh, the single most powerful urge in human beings. Some people dispute that, but that's that's their prerogative. And <laughs> in the uh, in the, the chapter in Hill's book, uh, he starts out um, describing it basically that you know this sort of sexual drive in us has three basic purposes or potentialities. The first, obviously, the propagation of the species. Uh, second, the maintenance of health. As a therapeutic agency, it has no equal. That is kind of sounds a bit um, archaic language now, but I, rather I, clinical, yes, yes. But you know, we, I think sexual, we, but I think we all understand. Valid. You know, um, even if it's self-love, I think we all understand the value of that. And yes. but then it suddenly makes this what seems to be quite a leap. The third is the transformation of mediocrity into genius through trans transmutation. Now that sounds like it's almost from another book. Um, yes, but that's certainly. For me, just in those three purposes sets out, really, really boils it down. You can make babies, you can have fun, or you can potentially become a genius. And it's like, wow, okay, so... <laughs> and those I, are the choices in life. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, in the early version of uh, Think and Grow Rich that I had in our first interview, I described how it, uh, I read on the front, now fully restored. And I thought, I wonder what they mean by that. And amongst the sort of esoteric material that had been removed from some earlier editions, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the whole sex transmutation thing was gone from some of these earlier versions. And uh, it was one of the chapters that really captured my imagination as well, because we all, any of us, you know, we, we understand this urge. Uh, well, I say something we misunderstand, but we feel it, perhaps I should say, rather than understand it. And so the nub of it is, as from Hell's perspective, uh, and you can expand on this, is that again? We're, we're talking about men often in this because that was the you know the age that he was writing in, and many of the eminent industrialists and and academics and other people he studied were men. So bear with us, listeners, if we keep saying men and man. But men will do anything for you know a woman, really, to get her, to keep her, 
whatever it happens to be. And this is about redirecting that energy, using that energy, which is incredibly creative because the schemes, the ideas, the energy that men will put into pursuing a woman is incredible, quite often unlike anything else they pursue in life. And it's like, well, what if you could pursue goals with that vim and vigor all the time? Imagine what you could do. And even even men of no notable achievement may find at some point in their life that they've gone to extraordinary lengths way beyond anything they ever have in pursuit of a woman. Yes, and there's a lot to unpack there. But the message that I want to get across to your listeners is that if they are intrigued by this, and it's almost impossible not to be intrigued by this topic, as with so many things having to do with sexuality, it's very, very simple to try, and it doesn't require any kind of a radical change in one's intimate life, quite the opposite. It's very private. Uh, it's exquisitely simple. And I'll get to the method in just one moment. I'll just add to what you were describing that Hill made the case that of all the motives behind human life, of all the urges, uh, imperatives, and urgencies that we feel and that we experience in life, of which there are many, he felt that the chief motive driving the human being is sexuality, is the search for sexual satisfaction, sexual procreation, physical pleasure, a sense of partnership, intimacy. And as you were alluding, individuals will do almost anything to those ends. Now, he felt there were lots of other motives in life, love, money, the wish to be appreciated, the wish for fame, power, all kinds of resources and so on, creative expressions. But he felt that if you really survey the human situation, uh, both historically and in terms of the behavior of yourself and individuals that you might encounter on the walk of life, you'll almost always find that sexuality, whether acknowledged or not, is the most powerful, most intense uh, motive that people experience in life. And in fact, they will risk their entire careers. They will risk their well-being. They will risk the well-being of others to satisfy this urge. It's difficult to argue with that. You know, I often find that people ponder why in the 21st century we encounter story after story after story of these titans of media, of industry, of politics, who seem to throw away their entire reputations, careers, ensure that their obituaries are going to reflect that they were associated with sexual scandal or sexual abuse. And Hill's answer in 1937 was simply that it is the greatest motivating factor that we experience in life. It's overwhelmingly powerful. I agree with that statement. I think he was a very shrewd observer of human nature, and I think it explains a lot about the human species and our behavior. If one accepts that statement, or if one doesn't, but says, look, I acknowledge it's obviously a very intense force in the individual, then it opens us to the question of what sexual energy is, and this gets us closer to the practical method. Simply put, Hill maintains that sexual energy is the creative urge of life itself, seeking expression. It's that simple. And it can be found through propagation of the species. It can be found through physical pleasure, 
but he'll believe that the sexual urge is actually behind every creative act that we undertake. Again, it's the creative principle of life itself seeking expression, seeking actualization. And we mistaken, we mistakenly limit our sense of sexuality to either the question of procreation or physical pleasure. Certainly it's bound up with both those things intrinsically, but he'll maintain that every time you are performing an act of salesmanship, every time you are creating a work of art, every time you are completing a cherished project of whatever nature, of whatever nature, could be something domestic, could be something career related, could be any number of things. Anytime you are dedicating your energies to the actualization of a cherished project, you are using and experiencing sexual energy. And again, this being the creative urge of life itself seeking expression. And his counsel is that if you become aware of that, you can actually elect to place these sexual energies at the back of whatever task you choose to at any given moment through a simple act of shifting your attention away from the physical satisfaction of the sexual urge and shifting your attention towards whatever task at hand it is that you wish to complete. Hence, when the individual experiences sexual desire, he or she, through a mental act, you can call it an act, an act of mental transmutation. You can call it an act of mental alchemy. But through a mental act, just by shifting your attention away from the satisfaction of that desire and in the direction of the accomplishment of whatever task you have behind you, you place enormous creative energies at the back of what you're doing. You will heighten your insight, your mental acuity, your physical energy, your enthusiasm, the intellectual quality of what you're doing. Now, he makes the case, and this may be somewhat hyperbolic, but he makes the case, as you were uh, alluding earlier, that the transmutation of this sexual energy into a more generalized creative energy focused on a given project can elevate a person from ordinary intellectual means to the echelon of genius. Now, that is quite a bold claim to make, and that's not the language that I use. But having used his method, I do find that he makes a compelling case that sexual energy is what's present when we use more euphemistic terms like charisma or like enthusiasm or like magnetism. And he makes the case that when you meet a salesperson, for example, who seems very, very persuasive, that person, either knowingly or not, and usually un unconsciously, is using a kind of transmuted sexual energy. So when we experience the sexual urge, usually we have a fairly limited range of choices. If we're in public, if we're in someplace inappropriate, we obviously defer its satisfaction to another time. If we are in private or if there's a situation that's intimate, we express its satisfaction physically, either with another or with ourselves. We may also be involved in an act of procreation, propagation. And those are the ordinary reactions, either deferral or satisfaction. 
What he's saying is there's a third option, and that is that through shifting your thoughts away from physical satisfaction and towards a cherished project, again, it could be an examination, a job interview, a work of art, an act of commerce, whatever it may be, it's up to the individual. You place enormous energies at the back of your efforts. You heighten your abilities, your insights, your enthusiasm, your intelligence, and he calls it sex transmutation. Today, we might call it sex magic. It's just a simple difference in vocabulary. Uh, others might call it an act of sexual alchemy or mental alchemy. But the thing I want to point out is that it doesn't require abstinence. It doesn't require any change, really, to your sexual life. It allows you at moments that you, the individual, choose without telling anybody in a completely private way to mentally elect to redirect attention away from sexual satisfaction, sexual pleasure, and towards the use of that sexual urge, energy, imperative to complete, to successfully complete a chosen task. And it's a wonderful, wonderful, magical, experimental method for the individual to try. And it, it can be tried so simply. It's almost too simple not to try in, in my outlook. Well, I think we all know people uh, about whom other people have said, uh, oh, well, if he or she spent as much time or put as much effort into doing X as they did to doing Y, they'd be better off, you know, uh, you know, for someone who's, I don't know, their, their career's going nowhere, you know, but they, they just, all they want to do is go and, you know, surf or something. And they're just like really good at surfing, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's about sort of where you direct your energies and whether that's getting where you, you know, where you want to go. Maybe they want to become a pro surfer, you know, but maybe they clearly have that drive and that energy within them, but it's just a question of where it's being directed. Um, as far as active creation and procreation goes, I mean, you can see, I think that energy it, it just in in creation itself in the universe it just happens yes. to look like in plants and animals on earth it just happens to look like varieties of sex act or yes. you know fertilization or whatever but you look at the chemical reactions in the stars you know and you can start to get fanciful and and poetic about communion you know and birth and death and life and create you know new life being created so i think you fundamentally do see that everywhere it's what it's about at roots you know is about creation and yes so and i think for anyone who understands the difference between making love and having sex you can begin to sense that extra layer of energy which just elevates something to the stars really you know the sex act outside of just pro you know uh, procreation and just pleasure when you bring that other level, you know, to use the word love, you bring that into it, then you can see how it becomes something. It does become transformed. And then you begin to see the potential for what you're talking about. This can be used for something else. It isn't just, it isn't just an orgasm and then you go to sleep or it isn't just making a baby. You know, these things are relatively mundane, you know, over very quickly as it were. Yes. So uh, yes. I think if you look, thinking about universal energy and thinking about bringing love into it, then that's when these other levels start to, you know, reveal themselves. Yes. It's, it's very interesting because as you were pointing out, you see this procreative imperative everywhere throughout our biological life, throughout the physical order, throughout the cosmos, even single-cell organisms split and divide into two, thus propagating self. And we see this in plants, animals, humans, etc. Everything 
bends toward self-propagation. It can be argued that another form of self-propagation is the creative act. Now, I'm using creative act very, very broadly. We tend to think of that in terms of the production of some piece of art or imagery or song or something of that nature. But the creative act can extend to any number of things, and of course it does. It can extend to designing a house, decorating a room, teaching a class. Look, the simple fact is it can extend to preparing a memo while you're at work. You're trying to persuade people of other things. You're trying to get across a certain policy, or you're trying to demonstrate your mastery of a subject that you're required to have some facility with. And everything that we do, in a certain sense, is an act of propagation. We want to be appreciated. We want to be recognized. We want to be remunerated. And we are a we are part of a generative life principle. And this is true not only of human life, but of all life. It, it perpetuates itself. So his contention is that sexuality, when it's geared toward propagation, is the most evident, most obvious way that we human beings participate in that. But we're doing it all the time. We're doing it all the time. And this thing that we call sexual desire, while we see it very, very narrowly, is the life principle itself seeking expression, seeking actualization. And we're using this life principle constantly without knowing it. So he maintains that every time somebody is engaged in an act of persuasion or debate or whatever it is they're doing with their lives at a given moment, this act of self-establishment is at work. And the energies, the drive, the urgency behind it is what we call sexuality. If you can channel it consciously, you can pick your shots, so to speak. And he maintains that the sexual urge, when directed towards something consciously, will just enormously increase your abilities, your faculty, your intellectual power. I've personally found that to be true. And the steps towards harnessing this sexual energy are so simple. They're just a simple mental act of redirecting your energies. And I have to give great credit to Napoleon Hill because when he was writing about this in 1937, you can only imagine how alien all this must have sounded, how truly esoteric all this must have sounded. And he was writing for a very mainstream audience, not people who were familiar with Aleister Crowley or P.B. Randolph or any of the other figures who helped pioneer what we today call sex magic. This was very, very dicey, edgy material. And he was echoing attitudes about sexuality that, as I alluded earlier, you could find in Taoism, in Kabbalah, in Hermeticism, in the Vedic literature. And it's, it's, something that he seems to have come to largely himself, but I, I'm always very intrigued when people who are separated by vast stretches of time, geography, language, outlook, culture, come to similar conclusions. I always watch for that. I feel like there's something very, very valuable in that breadcrumb trail, so to speak. The fact that somebody writing in 1937 from a very mainstream perspective was echoing certain outlooks and attitudes that you find in some of the perennial traditions and seemingly coming to it on his own in his own language and his own style. I think it's suggestive that he was onto some sort of primal truth. Oh, absolutely. Because one thing <clears throat> to 
uh, reinterpret and rebadge and repackage, for example, esoteric ideas for a mainstream audience, it's another, as you say, to basically come to the same conclusions yourself in different language, different words, in, yeah. in a different time. This suggests, you know, these sort of eternal truths or perennial wisdom or the fact that, you know, that, that there are things that exist beyond opinions of human beings. Yes. Just briefly thinking about the sort of some of the positive and negative dimensions of sexuality. I mean, um, Hill states, and it should be clear to anybody who's alive, that the sexual urge, well, contrary to some people's opinions, but it cannot and should not be submerged or eliminated. Yes. You know, you, you, you can't just it, remove this. Uh, it, and in fact, going beyond that, as we've touched upon when I was talking about making love as opposed to having sex, this whole experience in its vastness and complexity really can enrich the mind, body and spirit of a human being. And we see what happens in various situations and in cases when it is the, the urge it cannot and or is not fulfilled or it's denied or whatever it happens to be. And we can all think of examples of this, you know, individual, institutional, cultural, whatever. So this is something to be to be celebrated, but equally, it is something that very often is a lowest common denominator affair and the shortest route is taken to fulfillment. I'm thinking now of the, you know, the lab rats who, you know, sort of would starve themselves to death uh, and, you know, they're able to um, have orgasms at will. Uh, maybe you'll remember this experiment. I can't remember the details or the name, but it was kind of like, you can have an orgasm now. Oh, have one. Straight afterwards, straight afterwards, straight afterwards. Oh, actually, you're neglecting everything else. You're not eating, you're not resting, uh-huh. you're doing nothing, you know. So that base urge can be corrupted and corrupting. And sure. pe- people yeah. can pursue that without any of the other dimensions. Uh, in the world of the internet, we see the profusion of pornography now. So you can definitely debase and lower yourself through sexual expression, even if your expression is not perverted or against any sort of societal norms or whatever it happens to be. So how elevating this can be, how enriching, how essential, but equally it can be, it can be debasing, can reduce that person and they can get completely lost in that. Uh, apropos of the internet, I'm not sure we would have the internet in its current form if it weren't for sexuality. I'm not sure the internet would have arrived on schedule if it weren't for sexuality. It's amazing the extent to which sexuality drives technology as well. Uh, I'm presuming the most popular things online are pornography, weather and sports probably in that order and then of course you know there's the various social media and gossip and things like that but it's astounding the extent to which new technologies get developed and rendered more advanced by the desire to channel media over these things and that media let's face it very very often is sexual or pornographic in nature where did pay-per-view come from you know, where did all the various home media delivery services, you know, from beta to VHS to DVD come from? Of course, we're all watching movies and events and concerts and different things, but I, I, I would, would warrant that sexual content makes up a very, very large fraction of that and drives the economies of a lot of our media, frankly. You were talking about how sexuality can be misdirected, and that's something that he'll made careful note of in his book and he said look if you accept my premise that the sexual urge is the most powerful motive in human life you also have to understand how easily 
this urge can be misdirected into abusive or destructive behaviors. And of course, we see that in our own time. It's always existed, but there's a, a greater spotlight and magnifying glass now on things that used to be uh, more surreptitious, more private. Uh, we see people who are widely considered to be, as I was saying earlier, these great titans of media, industry, politics, who engage in acts of sexuality that are either non-consensual, that are abusive, that compromise and hurt people around them, and that bring down their entire career, that bring down their entire lives. You know, people used to marvel at the fact that a figure like Bill Clinton, a greatly popular president, by all counts a brilliant man, profoundly charismatic man, compromised his entire presidency by having sex with an intern and then denying it. And people would say, wow, why would you, why would you risk toppling yourself from the pinnacle of world power just to have a sexual dalliance in the Oval Office with an intern? It seems almost hard to believe, but isn't that a parable of the whole human situation? You know, uh, sexuality has been the back of wars. Sexuality has been at the back of murders. Sexuality is at the back of every love song, great work of art, sonnet, play, you know, from Macbeth to a, a, a song by, you know, Led Zeppelin that's ever been constructed. And it's interesting, we, we will see friends of ours, and sometimes we see this in our own lives, get involved in relationships that are destructive, that are just not good for the individual. And I'm sure your listeners themselves can summon up such times where they've done things like this. I can summon up such times where I've done things like this. It's like careening down the road in a car without brakes, knowing this is a terrible idea. This relationship is not productive. This relationship is not helpful. This relationship is not uh, respecting of the dignity and the best things that I want to bring into the world. And yet we've all been in relationships that careen out of control. You know, how do you explain that? Hill would say that is sexual energy that is deformed by a lack of constructive behavior, foresight and so on. And you can't much blame the individual in many cases because we're driven by such terrible, um, there's such a sense of urgency. There's such a sense of need. There's such a sense of imperative. It gets the better of us. It just gets the better of us. Of course, none of that is an excuse for anybody to act out in ways that are abusive or non-consensual, which is the other side of this. Uh, you, you see entire lives that are malformed people who are harmed because the sexual impulse has been allowed to strike like lightning without any control whatsoever, without any uh, ethics without any empathy, without any humanity. And Hill warned about this. And he said, you know, this, this as above, so below, all of life is a polarity. All of life is a joining of opposites. This force that we've been describing as a creative force can also, if misused, be a destructive force. And that's part of the story of our time. So uh, it's hard to argue with Hill's conclusions when you begin to unpack the implications of what he's talking about. You know, sexuality is the great creator and the great destroyer in that sense. It has a great deal in common with the hermetic insight as above, so below. It has a great deal in common with the idea of polarities, 
that you find expressed in Hermeticism. It has a great deal in common with ideas that you find in Vedic literature where you'll have certain gods like Shiva and Kali that are both creators and destroyers. In a certain sense, in a certain sense, all of that can be seen as a metaphor for sexuality, for the creative principle of life, which can go in the direction of either generativity or destruction. Well, you mentioned the word um, urgency there, you know, feeling a sense of urgency. And that kind of is how many people feel in life itself, particularly as, as they get older. And even if it's subconscious sense of urgency, and this is where the creative drive sometimes just, as you say, careens out of control a little bit because we're trying to leave something behind and somehow achieve some kind of immortality. Because for many people, before they're born, after they die, there is nothing so they want to leave something of themselves. This doesn't have to be children. It can be a body of work. Uh, it can be um, a building. You know, I see in, in someone like Donald Trump, I see all these, um, you know, grotesque kind of buildings yes. <laughs> as, as his, his, his children, if you know what I mean. Uh, so They're all over my city. They're all over New York City. And let me tell you, they age terribly. The building materials that he uses are very cheap and chintzy. And there are Trump buildings all over uh, Manhattan, where I live, and the elements just eat them away. Uh, the brass that's used outside of the building turns kind of green and moldy looking after a couple of winters. The windows get beclouded very quickly. The building materials are not of really high quality, so there's a lot of uh, ugly children you know, around the city with the name Trump on it. Well, he's kind of just a fornicate and forget kind of guy in that sense, you know. <laughs> yes, and he's left us with the bill to clean it up because uh, if you're ever in New York City, I can take you around to take a quick look at some of Trump's buildings. And I tell you, you know, when they first go up, they look like these kind of upended glass tissue boxes. And, and yet after a couple of seasons of the elements, they start to get very gray. They start to look like clay because the, the outer building materials are cheap. You mentioned earlier about people of high achievement. You know, as I say, in Napoleon Hill's era, he was mostly talking about men. And in the chapter and in your commentary, it, you talk about, you know, the connection between being highly sexed, highly driven in that way and high achievement. And yeah. you, st you sort of map some of the correlations here. Uh, you know, you're, you expand upon what, upon what Hill was writing. Sort of say, look, here are these eminent individuals, high achieving people who I've studied. Here's what I found in common with them. One of these things is to do with this being highly sexed. However, whatever phrase you want to use. And you've also touched upon the idea of the rich and famous and powerful coming unstuck with these sort of like sex scandals. Clinton, of course. Epstein is a recent mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. Harvey mm -hmm. Weinstein. And, uh, of course, uh, these are quite often mostly men. So this is a case of this. It just shows you how that the potential for the energy we're talking about, but also the risk. If you don't understand it, if you don't handle it carefully, if you don't approach it in the right way, if you're not bringing the, the appropriate intention to it, for me, it goes back. This is just my personal perspective. It goes back to what I was saying earlier about the difference between making love and having sex. Mm -hmm. And I think some high achievers are leaving their mark in business and politics. They're kind of having sex, you know? Mm -hmm. But some, yes. indi some individuals that we can think about who've transformed themselves or the world around them or whatever, and they, they made love. They brought that creative energy in its most positive guise into the world. Yes, that's very interesting. It's a question of whether you're creating something that, first of all, has a certain reciprocity, whether you're creating something that 
forms some sort of circuitry that benefits other people around you. And one could look at that in terms of sexuality. One could look at that in terms of creation writ more largely. If a person is in a real relationship, if a person is in a consenting, respectful relationship, and there aren't these weird imbalances of power or things like that, I would say that's that's generative. That creates a, a circuit of good. Likewise, what you're describing, if a person is creating something that helps others to reach their own highest potential, I would say that person has nothing to apologize for in life. I would say that person has uh, performed an act that has assisted the overall generativity of other people around him or her. And that could be anything. That could be anything. You know, that could be the martial artist. That can be the soldier. That can be the teacher. That can be the accountant. That can be the doctor. It can be just any number of things. Uh, a person who does a decent job raising kids. You know, these are all things that I think you would describe as making love, you know, rather than just the sexual act. And the sexual act, of course, is okay, too, as long as it's consensual and everyone involved is is on board and that it's a, it's a cooperative effort. But I think what you're pointing out is that, you know, we can, it's again, it's a kind of polarity. You know, I mean, we can bring things into the world that are destructive, bridges that are going to fall, buildings that are going to be horrible and ugly, or workplaces that perhaps are are dreary and people are not fairly treated or fairly remunerated, or we can bring something creative into the world. And what we're going to be remembered for is always an open question. Whether we're going to be remembered at all is also an open question. But one can never quite be sure. One can never quite be sure. So it stands to reason that it's worthwhile going through life with a very careful sense of reciprocity because you have no idea what it is that you that you do uh, or what nature of act that will outlive you. And I think there's probably people who have passed on who would be very surprised to realize what it is they've been remembered for or that they've been remembered at all or that they haven't been remembered for that fact. You know, I was shooting a television show a couple of weeks ago in the home of a very, very famous New York family. And uh, the show was being shot in their library. And I was looking at all the books that lined the walls and there were some very wonderful, very notable books. And yet there were a great many books that I recall from when I was young in the 70s, 80s, that loomed very largely over the culture, but are simply not read today. You know, I was asking myself just the other day, you and some of your listeners will remember the conservative political commentator, William F. Buckley. He was also another very, very charismatic figure. Uh, when he spoke, it sounded like the angels were singing, regardless of whether one liked what he was saying or not. He loomed very, very largely over the culture, at least here in the United States. And it dawned on me, are any of his books being read at all today? Is anybody anywhere reading William F. Buckley? He was a personality of such prominence as I was growing up. And the man was almost preternaturally prolific, would turn out book after book, column after column, article after article. I couldn't tell you that a single one of his books is being read today in any but the most isolated quarters. It's strange. It's strange. Sometimes very famous people uh, will will not in, in any way leave anything for posterity. 
Whereas a figure named H.P. like H.P. Lovecraft, you know, who died being thought of as this misanthrope who wrote for pulp magazines that was you know, printed on, on paper as suggested by the name that was the cheapest form of paper that would break down very quickly. Um, the man's being read everywhere today. You can't walk into a single bookstore. You can't walk into a single well-stocked library without finding a wide selection of Lovecraft books. Um, these, of course, are extreme examples, but we just don't know what twists and turns life is going to take and whether our works are going to prove uh, creative, destructive, or forgettable. I feel very much the same way about Colin Wilson, yes, uh, the English author, who, uh, although I don't think he'll ever be forgotten, certainly I wonder about people uh, a lot younger than me, you know, half my age and younger, who are just like, who, what? And this is someone that I always felt from when I discovered his work that was writing, could have been writing just for me, you know, which yes. is like really, yes. really, really, really special. He had that gift, Colin could make you feel that way, that you were involved in an intimate conversation. Now, he wrote a book towards the end of his life, not widely known, called Super Consciousness. I read that book one weekend a few years ago, and I can't tell you how greatly it aroused me, how it filled me with joy and enthusiasm, because Super Consciousness was Wilson's intellectual defense of optimism. And I thought it was just remarkable, because he pointed out how our culture, Western culture, in the late 20th century, actually throughout much of the 20th century, kind of gave itself over to this point of view that was promulgated by figures like uh, a Bertolt Brecht um, or Samuel Beckett, that life at its, at its foundation was grim, was a struggle, was suffused with ugliness, darkness, betrayal, difficulty. And Wilson made the case, well, certainly... We see some of that in life. There's no contesting that. But do we know? Do we know that that is actually the foundation of life? If that were the case, would any of us experience this intense drive to go on living, to find our way within life? And he said, how do we know that the actual basic foundation of life is not the opposite of all those things? Joy and love and creativity and possibility and generativity. Again, we're not saying that all of those grimmer traits are not present. Of course they're present. They're abundantly present. Who could argue with that? But to say that that's the actual granite bedrock truth of the human situation is an unexamined idea, an untested supposition philosophically. And he decided in superconsciousness to put that to the test, and he made the case that in the human experience you actually find the presence of an abundance of traits that are quite the opposite of those things. And that, rather than the, the grimmer foundation of life depicted by some of the existential artists, could be the truth of life. So, so superconsciousness is an intellectual defense of optimism. And I just found it a very brave book, very radical book, not a well-known book by Wilson. If people pick their favorite Wilson book, very few people will name that one. And yet I have my eye on this book because it – it inspired me, and if, and if it touched me, I can't imagine that I'm exceptional. I can't imagine that other readers haven't had similar experiences. So who knows? You know, who knows? I just raised the question that my hope, of course, is that Wilson will be remembered. Maybe it'll be that book or some uh, of his so-called lesser-known books that will wind up being the most enduring. We really don't know. 
Well, interestingly, Watkins uh, publishers in London are just about to bring out a new edition of Superconsciousness. With, oh, that's great. With a forward, a new forward by Colin Stanley, who over here in the UK organizes the annual Colin Wilson conference. Anyone out there is listening is interesting in Colin Wilson. We'd love to see more of you at our little conference. <laughs> that is wonderful. Uh, that's such wonderful news and very serendipitous. Well, one thing that Hill touches upon in general in Think and Grow Rich, again, profiling all these successful individuals, is about that when in their lives different things happen, specifically when they begin to achieve their most notable successes. And as perhaps is not surprising, it's men, in his case, who are, you know, middle-aged or older than that. And, you know, they talk this thing, life begins at 40 is a popular cliche. And yes. in, ma- in many ways in Think and Grow Rich, it's being, oh, well, hell's almost saying almost like success begins at 40 in a way. Now, this is not unrelated to sex drive and urges. You would expect for men and women somewhat over the course of a lifetime that your sex drive and your urges and your preferences might change and evolve. And of mm. course, people expect it towards the end of your life. If your sex drive doesn't, you know, wither completely, then it may, mm. it may well be diminished. That's hardly surprising. Mm-hmm. Many things are physical in us are somewhat diminished towards the end of our lives. However, he begins, he talks about this in terms of achievement and success and how long before any sex drive might diminish, it can become refined, redirected. And essentially that you get over just being a rutting teenager and you begin to, <laughs> you know, you begin to just, you're taking more control, more mastery, more understanding of yourself and what's driving you. And that makes it easier and more likely that you'll be able to transmute some of this energy as you get older, specifically for men when you, when you do pass 40. And that, re- that remains true today. You know, to some extent, those sentiments of Hill's maybe are a little old-fashioned and, and reflect the time and the mores in which he existed. What he's suggesting is that when a person is younger, he or she is spending more time sowing their wild oats, so to speak. And then as as they age, they experience a greater sense of focus, self-control, perspective, and some of the sexuality that they were just exploring for sport perhaps not only gets channeled more into solid relationships but gets channeled more in the direction either knowingly or not of some of the tasks that they want to accomplish in the world hence his formula that uh men rarely succeed before the age of 40 and again we use men only because that was the the language that hill was writing in in an earlier generation but he made it clear that he was talking about all individuals uh he also references as as you mentioned before that uh men who are highly sexed to use his phrase tend to uh, excel now i think that the sexual urge is felt in all people uh sexual urgency is felt and experienced by all people, whatever their proclivities, whatever their relationship situation. Um, unless we're talking about somebody in very advanced years, I would even say probably whatever age. So this is present for everybody and, and it exists for everybody. And it's interesting to sort of watch the spell that a persuasive salesperson can, can work over you. Not necessarily somebody who is uh, sexually attractive, but a, can be a person of any gender or age, there are certain people who are just compelling, who have the ability to get their point of view across to us, to get what they want from us. And 
Hill would say that is sexual energy at work, what we call charisma or the feeling that a salesperson maybe is flirting with us, even if there was no overt sign of that. We're getting a sense that there is some sexuality present there, transmuted in that transaction. There's one other dimension that that somewhat gets touched upon in Hill's book. Uh, certainly, you know, there's things that, that you've written that that overlap with this, and that's the idea that these drives have a physical manifestation that isn't limited just to sexual urges, sexual acts, or indeed other acts of creation. You know, like starting a business or writing a book, um, mm-hmm. or you know, perf- you know, composing an opera. And that there's certain things um, that that can mark, you know, because Hill was mapping commonalities in the people he was studying to see what he could learn. Yes. He could learn from that. And yes, the, the idea of personal appearance comes up. And for me, this is where some of your ideas and some of the ideas that you've developed and built upon from earlier thinkers um, overlap with what we might call more mundane success formulas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you want to be successful, do this, do that, the other thing, and because a, a lot of mundane, well, I say mundane, sorry, I don't mean to use that word, but a lot of popular uh, success uh, formulas, uh, maybe something like the secret or mm-hmm. even uh, in the, you might find in the business section you know, about, you know, make more sales today and whatever. I just invent some titles. These pick out little dimensions that do overlap with all of this. It's just that they don't have any of the spiritual or esoteric component. But Hill's highly sexed individuals tended to think about their personal appearance. They wouldn't um, show up to a business meeting. They wouldn't any more than you would go on a date in sweatpants and a, a string vest. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> in your in your bare feet. Someone, someone once showed up uh, on a date in sweatpants uh, with me. That relationship did not proceed. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is it. I mean, there's there's a quote. Uh, sorry to bear down on anyone who's listening to this and sitting comfortably in their sweatpants right now. It's okay to wear sweatpants. There it's is, fine. but there's a, there's a quote attributed to Carl Lagerfeld, the late yeah. Uh, yeah. fashion designer, uh, and the quote was that sweatpants are a sign of defeat. Uh, you lost oh. you lost control of your life. You lost control of your life. You bought some sweatpants, you know. So uh, that's extremely judgmental, but I liked it anyway. You know. Well, I so. think it's that's it something. There's a little bit of Truman Capote in there. I like that. Oh, um, oh yeah, totally a cultural critic. Absolutely, you know. Yeah. Look, you're you're making a very important point, and I, I think it deserves it deserves a hearing. First of all, earlier generations were told to dress for success in a very conventional way. You know, that usually meant suits and shine shoes for men, dresses or pantsuits for women. All of this is different today culturally, but the basic principle still holds. I think that I know from personal experience and from whatever I've been able to observe in the lives of other people who have inspired me, that if you cultivate a style of dress in which you feel comfortable, natural, self-expressive, in which you are telling the story about yourself that you want to tell, you will be happier, more persuasive, more confident, more charismatic, more magnetic. And it this isn't a question of trying to conform to some social standard. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's asking, what makes me most comfortable? What story do I want to tell about myself? Everything tells a story. And it's all a question of what story is getting conveyed when you walk into a room. Uh, it's, it's really worth noting 
and I, if I may even say it can be a very enjoyable facet of life, asking what story you want to tell, what you wish to communicate. We have greater latitude and greater freedom than we think, even depending upon, you know, some of this is impacted by where we live, what our responsibilities are, what our social surroundings are. But even, even, even acknowledging that, we have greater latitude than we realize in terms of crafting the story that we want to tell apropos of what we wear and how we present ourselves. And it's really worth looking at that. And it's worth looking at that not just when we're going on a date or going into a job interview or going to an important meeting, but I think it's worth looking at that throughout the ordinary daily hours of life. And I think we neglect we neglect what we can say, what story we can tell about what we wear, about how we present ourselves. And when we're conveying the story that we want to tell, when we're presenting the image that we want to present, when we feel like ourselves, we're vastly more effective. We're vastly more persuasive. Our voice changes. Our physical manner changes. Our posture changes. Our mood even changes. Years ago, I got fed up with seeing myself on TV uh, wearing a blazer standing in front of bookcases, you know, looking like I was, you know, professor so-and-so from somewhere. Because that's not me. That's not me. It's not how I dress in day-to-day life. I wear T-shirts. And I started wearing T-shirts on camera, not because I was trying to make some bold statement, but just because I was wanting to feel comfortable, wanting to feel at ease, wanting to feel natural, wanting to appear in front of the camera the way I do in day-to-day life. And someone I love said to me, hey, you better watch out. You know, if if you're wearing T-shirts on some of these television shows, you're going to look kind of amateurish. You know, you might find that uh, invitations are going to dry up. And I said to her, you know what? I dig your concern, but I feel just the opposite is true. And so it happened that invitations increased, and I felt more and more comfortable uh, wearing a t-shirt, wearing a leather jacket, wearing jeans, wearing boots, not because I was trying to make any big point to anybody, but because I was doing the same thing on camera that I do in day-to-day life. And it made me feel much more comfortable, much more like myself and more able to connect with the viewer because I was presenting myself in a more natural way, not with some kind of a front. We don't have to obey the rules. We don't have to obey the rules. And I, I really want to leave everybody with that impression. Because while obviously you don't want to convey disrespect to other people, you don't want to show up at a a funeral wearing a pair of flip-flops, but, you know, the rules don't have the hold on us that we think they do. And I would ask every individual listening, what makes you most comfortable? What makes you feel most self-expressive? And is there anything stopping you from being that person all the time? Yeah, because I've seen loads of guys in all sorts of formal situations stuffed into a suit. They, they're not comfortable in it. It's not the them. And yeah. they, they look bad. Yeah. You know? So it's about whatever you're doing. It's about doing it consciously, as you say, your self-expression, because that pe- people see that it works. I see you in your promo photos and some of your videos. You got your, uh, your hardcore punk t-shirt on. You got your leather jacket, you know, and it, it, wearing that, it right now. And I'm just in my living room. You yeah. Know? <laughs> and, and that's you. And that works. And people are not taking you less seriously because of that. The on the contrary, because you're comfortable and you're doing all those things you describe. You're coming across well because you feel good about yourself. You feel yourself. 
So that's very important. And I want to give a shout out to, because uh, I'm a, a fan of thinking about every, you know, whether you're thinking about what you're eating, thinking about who you're comporting yeah. with, thinking about yeah. what you're doing every minute of the day. And uh, one of my favorite YouTube channels is uh, Real Men, Real Style. Um, Antonio there, I think, does a great job. And he's all about the power of the suit. But he is also emphasizing, again, it has to be you. And if, yes. you're, if you're not a suit and tie guy, then don't do that. It's, people can tell. Dress for success, yes, but that it's not a uniform. There's no dictating what that is. And I would yes. say that all of that kind of reminds us on the journey that we've been since Napoleon Hill's day in terms of like, you know, as you say, social mores, fashions, how things are done. And transferring that across to what we've been talking about, you know, sexuality, the sexual urge, sexual energy, is become aware of these drives and urges and how that affects your action. And maybe that's a point to close on, close on because all of this is maybe the ultimate link between the mind of man and what hell refers to as infinite intelligence you know that transcendent dimension whatever it is so just any decision whatever it is you take do it think about it do it consciously whatever it happens yes. to be you know yes yes i i celebrate that i'm working on a new book called secrets of self-mastery which comes out in the month of january and i try to highlight some of these choices in that book that we're we're talking about it, it very often what we might call a feeling of self possession arises from making choices, not being always just sort of dragged with the flow. And look, I, I, I try to be realistic about this. Sometimes we're not able to make a choice. We have a physical urge. We want to eat something or put something in our bodies that's not necessarily healthy. And it's an illusion to imagine that I'm always operating from a place of choice. I am, I am not. I am pulled along by automatisms the way that everybody else is. But there is a margin there. There is a margin. And there are ways that we can make choices and examine things at certain select moments, just as there are select moments where we can elect to redirect the sexual urge from its ordinary expression, nothing wrong with that, to the completion of a project. We can select not to show up or a social event or a work event or even just for everyday life, wearing something that we feel conforms to some invisible set of rules but makes us feel squirmy and uncomfortable. We can elect, and I, I emphasize this all the time, not to engage in gossip, not to engage in tailbearing, not to make smart-ass comments over the Internet. I always tell people that the Internet online culture provides us with limitless opportunities to be a smart ass don't take them don't take them it might be the best decision you ever make in your life okay today mitch we've been discussing t topics in your recent little book uh, the power of sex transmutation how to use the most radical idea from think and grow rich that of course is napoleon hill's book uh, that's got his chapter included in it and also yes your, your commentary which is taken from your presentation people can obviously get a copy of Think and Grow Rich. If there's any other resources particularly relevant to what we've talking about, you might like to fire them out there. But also just, of course, tell people about your website, anything else you want to share. Sure. Um, my website is my name, MitchHorowitz.com. I'm on Twitter at MitchHorowitz, Instagram at MitchHorowitz23. Uh, you can find The Power of Sex Transmutation anywhere where you buy books. 
including a struggling little startup called Amazon. It's available <laughs> on <laughs> digital, <laughs> audio, uh, paperback, and uh, my latest book, which is coming out in the month of January, is called Secrets of Self-Mastery, and I expand uh, further in that book on some of the themes that we were talking about, and that can be pre-ordered as well. Splendid. Well, once again, Mitch, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. A pleasure. Thank you, man.